Hey folks, another busy week of politically charged legal news making the headlines. Texas's restrictive abortion law is back in court as a federal judge considers the Department of Justice's emergency request to block the law. In other news, the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection at the Capitol issued new subpoenas for a number of Trump allies who helped organize the rally on January 6th. The committee also recently subpoenaed former Trump aides, including White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and Trump campaign CEO Steve Bannon. Joyce Vance and I discuss all this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership free for two weeks. You can do that at cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. We look forward to having you as part of the insider community. So I think the, the question that everyone is waiting for us to get to is do these folks have to comply with the subpoenas and what basis do they have to not comply? So we should take the two groups separately for a moment. So you have Meadows, Bannon, Cash Patel, Scavino. Three of those four were in governmental positions at the time of the conduct that's being inquired about and the communications took place. One of them, Steve Bannon, I don't know what basis at all. Steve Bannon, who was a private citizen at the time, and by the way, was under indictment in the Southern District of New York, later pardoned inexcusably, to my mind, by, by the pre- former president. I don't know what argument of executive privilege or anything else Steve Bannon can make. Now, the other three... It's more like a criminal conspiracy than it is like executive privilege if he and Trump had a conversation and he no, wants to say he doesn't have to tell. I agree with that, but I'm, I'm just saying what, what straight-faced argument are lawyers for these people going to make? And we can today and in future weeks talk about executive privilege and how that works and what the back and forth is and what the negotiation is over that. But certainly Meadows, Cash, Scavino, and Bannon to a lesser degree will not want to cooperate, will not want to come in, will throw up the roadblock of executive privilege, even if it does not you know, sit well within understood parameters of, of executive privilege because of the reasons you cite and others. But then you have these other 11 folks who were on the permit paperwork, you know, one or more of whom worked in the government, like Maggie Mulvaney, who I think was the niece of Mick Mulvaney. And you'll get into a weird back and forth and litigation over whether or not the House can subpoena one of its own people, someone who works in the House, whether a member or a staff member. But these other private citizens who were engaging in preparation for the rally, before we get to how the subpoenas can be enforced, what's the basis on which some of these folks are going to say, nah, rather not come in? So this will, if they challenge the subpoenas, be like so much of what we saw during the Trump administration, where there's some sort of specious privilege or immunity asserted, and the purpose is delay. Ultimately, the legal theory is flawed, but they know that they can get into civil courts and delay their obligation to testify by doing that. One would hope, and and we can talk about this as we get into enforcement, one would hope that the courts would be savvy to that by now. Yeah, I guess that's right. I mean, do you see anything legitimate that they can assert? I I just don't. I mean, I don't know that everyone's going to assert. And by the way, with respect to some of these folks, including the the Trump advisors, there's a political cost to be paid for doing this, but it's legally protective to assert the Fifth, Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. Preet, only the guilty, only the guilty take the Fifth Amendment. Trump himself has said that. I know you're quoting Trump. You don't you don't actually <laughs> believe that. He has said that with respect to other folks who are in position to incriminate him. That if you invoke the Fifth Amendment, 
you're doing that because you must be guilty. He didn't spend a lot of time studying any law. But look, some of these folks might want to come in, right? Because they don't want this hanging over their heads. And some of them are in the position to give testimony about red flags. And some of them maybe are appalled by what happened on January 6th. I don't, I don't know enough about these 11 people. We'll learn more about them as time goes by and what their lawyers assert. But some of them may come in. I think the people closer to Trump will never want to come in. Who knows, though? Maybe a Steve Bannon who really seems intent on burning the whole house down might want to come in and answer some questions and say, what are you going to do about it now? He, he wants his Oliver North a, moment. I mean, he seems to be in a very unusual, aggressive, and openly talking about it posture. So deranged. I wonder if he might not be the one. Yeah, deranged is good. I wouldn't rule out the possibility, although I don't think it's a high percentage chance, that he might show up with whatever his crazy agenda is. So now we're getting to the big question, right? That I get asked, you get asked, that everyone gets asked. And it's because we say we're a nation of laws, not men. And we say no one is above the law. And we say Congress has power and there's a judiciary that has power and a properly issued subpoena cannot just be defied. There has to be some consequence for that. And as an introductory point, I will say, you're right to feel irritation and frustration about how sometimes that doesn't play out. There is a big difference between subpoenas that you and I issued or authorized when we were U.S. attorneys, where you have a lot of power and force and authority in the courts, and you have a cadre of agents, whether it's police officers or FBI agents or DEA agents, who can help enforce these things. And there's a long tradition, you know, every day in federal courts around the country and in state courts around the country with respect to DA's subpoenas, there's litigation over the scope of subpoenas and whether or not they can be enforced. And contempt is something that happens not uncommonly. And people go to prison for defying criminal subpoenas, grand jury subpoenas. These subpoenas are not grand jury subpoenas. And they're a bit, you know, frankly, weaker. And they have less of a track record. And there's a lot more negotiation about them because especially when there's a fight between co-equal branches of government, you have one branch of government, the Congress, trying to get information from another branch of government, the executive. It's not as easy as when you and I issued subpoenas for bank records in connection with a money laundering investigation. And so I commend to folks' attention, you and I were talking about this, Ellie Honig, our colleague, wrote a great piece for CAFE where he, he basically lays out in some detail and entertainingly the possibilities of how you can enforce a subpoena. So the possible ways to enforce, and then Joyce, let me know what you think about them. One is Congress itself using its inherent power could try to enforce the subpoenas. Second, they could go to the courts, the federal courts, to enforce the subpoenas. Third, they can make a criminal referral to the Department of Justice headed by Merrick Garland, and they can bring a criminal case for the purpose of enforcing the subpoenas. Any of those going to fly? Well, Ellie is genius like he always is. This is one of my favorite reasons that I'm a CAFE subscriber and have been since long before we did the podcast together because I like to read the notes. And Ellie here, I think, is just accurate and dead on the money about the enforcement options for these subpoenas. He is very quick to dismiss this notion that Congress can use its own in inherent enforcement authority. That's something that people talked a lot about during the two Trump impeachments. Well, the forget what the argument was. The marshal of the House can just go out and arrest the people. The sergeant at put, arms. The sergeant, the sergeant at arms. The sergeant at arms, thank you, can go and out no and jail. arrest people <laughs> and put them in this non-existent jail in the Capitol, right? 
The point that Ellie makes, and it's correct, is that Congress has left this power dormant for more than 100 years. It may have had force at some point. It no longer does. An effort to use this to resurrect this power would be tied up in endless litigation, and nobody benefits from delay here, right? The whole goal is to elicit evidence while it's fresh and and relevant. Can can we just pause on that for a moment? Because we've said that a couple of times. And just spell out why delay it's a problem, you know, with the Mueller investigation, my view always was that Bob Mueller keeps his head down, and some people are not happy with what the outcome was, but he keeps his head down. He did what he needed to do. He didn't have to end his role when he did. I think he wanted to, to you know, sort of do the investigation, get out, and not come anywhere close to the election. He wanted to be done, and then, you know, leave the work behind for other people, some of which got scuttled by Bill Barr and others. And here, there's no law or statute that says it needs to conclude by some particular moment, right? There's no, there's not even a statute of limitations here because they're just doing an inquiry that doesn't have criminal force behind it. It's the pragmatic clock of the next election and how it will look for the committee to be inquiring into this stuff as we approach the midterm. So do you agree that there's a political clock? There is, but I, I'm not sure it's it's necessarily bad for people who want to learn the truth about January 6th, because remember, Republicans walked away from a deal that would have included a bipartisan committee whose work would have had to have concluded by the end of this calendar year. They bypassed that deal. And if this committee's work goes close to the election season because Republicans delay and don't comply with subpoenas and won't turn over documents— then I think the committee has a good argument for continuing its work without regard to the next election because the truth matters. But as you say, there is a political cost for doing that, and Republicans will cry witch hunt again. Right. So, okay, so I interrupted you. So, so the first method of enforcement is the sergeant at arms. Congress does it yeah, itself. Not happening. Not happening. So the next is the courts. What's wrong with that? So civil enforcement is a great mechanism, but we all remember that it too failed during impeachment. For one thing, it took Congress a long time to get into court with those subpoenas. I don't think that we'll see that happen again. I think that if the committee realizes it has to go the civil enforcement route, it will be quick to get into court, and it will hope that courts will rule expeditiously. But expeditiously in a legal system where you have to deal with important issues of executive privilege and other types of immunity doesn't mean in a couple of days or in a week. And even if district courts rule quickly, there is appeal to the Court of Appeals and perhaps ultimately to the Supreme Court. So this is a strategy that means we're looking at answers that could take, you know, a a long time, right? Many, many, many months. I mean, maybe even more than months because Don McGahn, who gets subpoenaed, We don't have a resolution of that issue and testimony by McGahn until after the Trump administration has ended. I mean, that's the potential sort of delay we're looking at. So civil enforcement is a possibility, but it raises all of the privilege issues for litigation, and it could take too long. Do you agree that they have to give that a shot? You can't just let it go. If inherent authority and the sergeant at arms, you know, taking cuffs to the intransigent witness is not a possibility— Notwithstanding the flaws and the delays, you got to get into court. You got to start that process. So I think we're going to see that, whether or not it it results in anything tangible on a quick time frame. That's a separate question. And then finally, it's angering to folks if you have a legitimate subpoena 
and it relates to an inquiry that's really, really, really important to the sort of stability of democracy in America or instability of it, they should come and testify. Just like any of the people that we issued subpoenas to in our prior jobs had to testify, otherwise there's a consequence. And here, there happens to be a law that criminalizes defiance of a congressional subpoena. How serious is that crime, Joyce? It was a carry, like a life in, life imprisonment, 20 years? What so is it's it? a misdemeanor. Oh, it's a misdemeanor. But it's a very unusual misdemeanor, right? Most misdemeanors don't involve any imposition of jail time. This misdemeanor has a mandatory minimum of 30 days. Now, I'm sure Steve Bannon can do 30 days uh, standing on his, standing head. on his head. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but nonetheless, there are some teeth to this criminal contempt. The big question is whether DOJ would bring criminal contempt cases to enforce these subpoenas. Well, they haven't in the past. They have not. They have never dealt with the situation involving an insurrection and the possible interference with the smooth transfer of political power in this country. But that, of course, has that you know difference has animated all of DOJ's process with these cases. And DOJ still seems to show a real lack of appetite to engage in a process that could be deemed political. I think that that's regrettable. And here's my point of view. When I issued subpoenas to people who really didn't want to come and testify in front of my grand jury, often they were worried that that people who were involved in, in the matter might, you know, exact some form of retribution against them. They were worried about their safety or the safety of their family. They had to come and testify. As you said, we always had the possibility that the United States Marshal would go out and put bracelets on them and bring them in to testify uh, involuntarily if they wouldn't show up pursuant to that subpoena. I don't understand why we can expect just average citizens to be more compliant with the justice system than we expect of these people who had taken oaths to uphold the Constitution, these first four. They had all been political appointees at some point. They had all taken that oath. Why they don't have to live up to it is both beyond me and ultimately will have a really strong negative impact on the rule of law in this country if they're able to avoid testifying. I'm going to restate a principle that doesn't necessarily apply in this case, although I think it does. And it's a mode of argumentation that I find silly and not quite up to the moments that we've been experiencing. And it's something like this. There are critics of some action by the government. Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership free for two weeks. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the Insider community, thank you for supporting our work.